prayed for us. So, Father, I pray for Mandy now. I pray that, um, yeah, that you'd give her freedom to, to be sensitive to your spirit, to, uh, that your words, her words would have power that comes from you. And that, uh, yeah, as she opens up your word to us, that we would be able to hear from you and that your word would have a transformational effect on us this morning. And so would you use her in that way for your glory? In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Thank you. Uh, Yes, so as uh, Jeff said, in this season of rest and recalibration that I've been in since about uh, Christmas, uh, we have been um, drinking deeply from the well of life and Jesus that is so strong among you guys here. Uh, You have been part of God's healing to our hearts, though you probably didn't know that. Uh, just by getting to be here among you. So uh, we want to thank you for that. And I'm honored today and only a little terrified to stand in front of you and to try to share a little bit back. Uh, Today we're going to look at a familiar passage in the Bible, Matthew 14, where first Jesus and then Peter go walking out on the water. I love this story. I love the crazy faith. I love the intensity of Peter and Jesus standing with their feet on the sea, totally defying the laws of nature and gravity. I believe in a God like that, who's miraculous, he's powerful. He does his own math, he makes something out of nothing. He takes things which are clearly, definitively dead and hopeless, and somehow turns them into wellsprings of life and redemption. Because that's who he is. He is a walk-on-water Savior. And I love knowing that we are uh, called to follow in the same footsteps. But before we read that text, I want to talk about a story a little more recent and a little closer to home. Uh, Nick Walenda is a high-wire artist known for performing crazy tightrope feats at world-famous locations without any safety net. In 2012, he set his sights on becoming the first person to walk a tightrope directly across Niagara Falls. Uh, Maybe some of you watched it on TV or even went down to the falls to see. Uh, You might remember that Walenda had to go through a whole bunch of rigmarole to make it happen. There were two years, I think, of negotiating to even get the permit to do the walk, and then months more negotiating to get ABC to broadcast it. Uh, The battle with ABC was that they wanted him to wear a safety harness around his ankle, something he had never, ever done before. And to him, that was unthinkable. I mean, that was half of his shtick, that he does all this stuff without any nets or harnesses. Uh, To them, it was unthinkable to put a man on a wire up over the falls without so much as a lifeline in case something terrible happened while millions of men, women, and children watched on. So, of course, ABC won, and he wore the harness. And I hated when that happened. Um, At the time when I said that, a friend reasonably asked me if I was nuts. Like, what, you actually want to watch a man possibly plunge to his death on live TV? No. But I didn't know why exactly. But there was my, my intense, riveted fascination with the whole event evaporated when they decided on the harness. Not because I ever wanted to see something terrible happen. I think I just realized that I wasn't riveted by the physical feat. You know, I 
tightrope walking is cool, but the human body and athletes can do all kinds of crazy things. I wasn't riveted by the athleticism of it. I was riveted by the faith and by the extremely bold, some would say ridiculous courage of a man willing to suspend his body out over a thundering gorge without so much as a safety net or a harness or any backup plan whatsoever if the worst should happen. That's what I wanted to watch real time as it was happening, wild, untamed courage. And they took that away when they gave him a harness. But there's something inside of me that cries out for that, that wants to see that, to get near it. I want to be inspired by it. You know, I want to learn how to call that kind of courage out of myself. But in Jesus, not in tightrope walking. And I think we can probably all agree it's good I'm not put in charge of decisions about what goes on live TV. The thing is, I suspect that we can't grow big, bold faith by taking tiny measured steps with a safety harness attached. Big, bold faith gets grown by taking big, bold steps in intimidating circumstances comes from throwing it all on the altar and waiting for God to come through. And I think Peter would tell us that the first step on that journey is that you have to actually be willing to get out of the boat. In Matthew 14, just to set the scene a little bit, Jesus and his disciples have been traveling around, teaching, healing, spreading the news of the kingdom. They're starting to become well-known. Crowds are starting to follow. They're starting to really tick the Pharisees and the religious leaders off. Things are heating up. The end is getting closer. So the disciples don't know that, but Jesus does. They've just found out that John the Baptist has been beheaded, and that's a big deal. They knew John. Some of them had been disciples of his before Jesus. Not only was it very personal in that way, but John had been beheaded for doing less than the disciples were doing now. And I wonder if they sense the figurative storm clouds starting to gather. So they got into a boat and they tried to pull away privately to get some space, maybe to process. But as soon as the boat gets to the other side of the lakes, the lake, they find that the crowd has followed. And so Jesus, being Jesus, can't help but have compassion on them. And so they launch into yet another marathon ministry session. In the middle of that, Jesus blows the disciples' minds by multiplying two fish and five loaves of bread into food for 5,000. So, you know, it's been a day. And my guess is, by the end of it, the disciples were pretty spent. But Jesus wasn't done yet. We're going to read Matthew 14, starting at verse 22, which is in page 869 in the Bibles in your chairs. Immediately, Jesus made the disciples get into the boat and go on ahead of him to the other side while he dismissed the crowd. After he had dismissed them, he went up on a mountainside by himself to pray. 
Later that night, he was there alone, and the boat was already a considerable distance from land, buffeted by the waves because the wind was against it. Shortly before dawn, Jesus went out to them, walking on the lake. When the disciples saw him walking on the lake, they were terrified. It's a ghost, they said, and cried out in fear. But Jesus immediately said to them, Take courage, it's I. Don't be afraid. Lord, if it's you, Peter replied, Tell me to come to you on the water. Come, he said. Then Peter got down out of the boat, walked on the water, and came toward Jesus. But when he saw the wind, he was afraid, and beginning to sink, he cried out, Lord, save me. Immediately, Jesus reached out his hand and caught him. You have little faith, he said. Why did you doubt? And when they climbed into the boat, the wind died down. Then those who were in the boat worshipped him, saying, Truly you are the Son of God. When they had crossed over, they landed at Gennesaret, and when the men of that place recognized Jesus, they sent word to all the surrounding country. People brought all their sick to him and begged him to let the sick just touch the edge of his cloak, and all who touched it were healed. This is the word of the Lord. There are so many counterintuitive things that Peter does in this story. I mean, who wants to get out of a boat and try to step on water in the middle of a calm day, let alone in the middle of the night, in the middle of a storm? Who looks at Jesus and says, hey, that that thing you're doing, I think I could do that too. Who, once they have successfully been walking on the water, who then suddenly decides to notice the wind and doubt? None of it's very rational. But there was something going on between Jesus and Peter that day. Peter was being given a chance to choose where he was going to let his trust rest and maybe how big of a leap he was willing to take with Jesus. Do you ever wonder why Jesus walked across the water? I mean, if it was just a matter of logistics, he needed to get to the boat and he was going to go all supernatural about it. Why not just teleport himself instantly? Why go the long route of walking all the way across that lake? Poggle the mind to say, maybe he just liked it. Maybe he enjoyed the experience of putting his feet on a stormy sea and walking through the waves. Like, could Jesus be that human? Maybe, after John's beheading... Maybe he needed to remind himself about exactly who was and wasn't the master of this world and everything in it. Maybe he just knew it was time to kick it up a notch. John had been killed. Calvary was getting closer. It was time to take the disciples to a new level of faith, and Peter in particular. I mean, if he just showed up, that's a one-second miracle that they would have scratched their heads about, like, did another boat taxi him? Did he swim? Has he actually been here all along? They could have had other explanations for him to suddenly appear, I think. They could have explained away the miraculous. You and I do it all the time. But he let them watch him walk across the lake. He made them sit with that miracle unfolding before their eyes for however long that took. Why? Partly I wonder if he was giving Peter time 
for something to stir deep inside of him. A fire that wouldn't be ignored. An ache for something more with Jesus. I wonder if he isn't trying to stir that same fire in every one of us. All of the disciples saw Jesus walk on the water. They all witnessed that miracle that day. But only one of them got out of the boat. And that man had a different faith experience in the moment. Which leads to the question, how much of our faith might sometimes just be a spectator sport? You have seen God do a lot of cool things. You've heard a lot of cool stories up here, out there, in the Bible. Whether it's Doug and Deanna sharing from Burundi, the SOAR team coming back from Montreal, they'll have them. There's so much cool God stuff that is happening out there in this world. But until you get out of the boat and put your own feet on the water, it's somebody else's story. And you can't really know it in your gut, even when you do believe it happened. God wants to meet you in your life, in supernatural, should be impossible, beyond your ability, groundbreaking ways for your sake and for the sake of the watching world around you. This story is about an intense moment between Peter and Jesus. But our lives are meant to be intense moments between us and Jesus. And when you step into those, it really does feel like walking on the water. I mean, it should be impossible to hear the voice of the Most High God speaking to you personally like the two of you are alone in the room. It should be impossible to repair fractured relationships so that they wind up more beautiful than they were before the breaking. It should be impossible to forgive someone who's broken your heart, betrayed your trust, someone who's wounded your child, or worse. It should be impossible to break chains of addiction, to set captives free, to suddenly know peace where you have only known pain before. It should be impossible to be physically healed from catastrophic disease, It should be impossible to hold on to peace and hope in the middle of illness that doesn't get healed. It should be impossible to feel the God of the universe flowing through you with his gifts and his abilities and his presence, the very heartbeat of his gospel. And it should be impossible that we get to be the bearers of the good news with all of our broken imperfections, our rebellious, untamed hearts, and our awkward human efforts. It should be impossible to walk on water. But here we are, doing all those things and more through Christ who strengthens us. And that's what this story at its heart is about. It is about making the impossible turn into reality. But we have to be willing to get out of the boat to experience it. So how do we even do that here today? We're not actually talking about boats and we're not actually on a sea. Unless you are watching this online from your boat, in which case, make your own applications. 
Uh, We can still look to Peter as our guide, I think. So what did he do? First, Peter paid attention to what Jesus was already doing. Notice that he didn't just ask to walk on the water like Jesus. It says he asked to walk on the water to Jesus. Lord, if it's you, tell me to come to you. Maybe Peter's motivation wasn't just to experience the miracle, but it was actually to get over to where Jesus was. Do we have eyes that are constantly searching the horizon for where Jesus is at? For watching for what he's busy about out there in the world? You know, where is he moving? What is he stirring? Who is he loving? How can I get to where he is and be part of what he is out there doing? Walking on water wasn't Peter's own crazy idea. He simply saw Jesus doing it first and wanted to do like Jesus. God is up to some incredible things in the world right now. He is working to redeem and restore so many broken things. Do our hearts catch fire to want to be where he is at? From there, I think Peter's process was relatively simple. He asked, Lord, if it's you, tell me I can come. Then he listened, expecting and waiting for a reply. And let it just be said that listening for God is an acquired skill. Because the Holy Spirit tends to speak more in whispers than in thunderclaps. Maybe because in whispering you have to lean in close to the person who's talking. But you can hear the voice of God in your life personally. You just have to practice listening regularly. And be okay with the fact that we aren't always going to get it perfect. Now this isn't in the text, but I imagine that Peter locked eyes with Jesus, both internally and externally. And then he just obeyed. He just did it. Leg it over the side of the boat, walk on water. So ask, listen, and obey. We are not so super with that routine these days. In our culture of skepticism and calculated risk assessment. I think self-protection is kind of like a national sport. We want to see if the road up ahead is solid before we venture out. We want to know the fine print and particularly the cost before we leave. We want proof that the water is going to hold before we step out onto it. But the trouble is you can't get that proof from inside the boat. It's an impossibility. Proof is only out there on the water. You will never learn how God can miraculously take care of you by holding back until you see him miraculously take care of you. We can't expect God's faithfulness to see that when we stay inside the boundaries of a life that you yourself can take care of perfectly well on your own. It just doesn't work that way. Faith gets built outside of the boat, outside our abilities. So if you jump, he will catch you. But he can't catch you until you jump. We can't learn how to water walk 
theoretically. And we can't feel God's supernatural catch while we're wrapped in our own safety nets. I mean, notice Peter literally took no safety precautions. There was no, like, floaty ring around his waist. He didn't take a rope or hold on to the side of the boat. He just asked, listened, and obeyed. We are invited on the same kind of adventure. When it's scary, when it's beyond our ability, when our eyes and the math say it's impossible, every time you find yourself saying the words, Jesus, I can't, it's too hard, you are in water-walking territory. And that is precisely the moment to jump, not the one to hold back in. Faith is a trust fall every single time. It's the leap into the unknown, beyond the borders of where you went yesterday. And sometimes the leap is to grab hold of something that you have never touched before, to do something you've never done before. And sometimes... It's to let go of something that you have been holding for so long. Sometimes the leap is literally to cross the globe. And sometimes it's across the street to your neighbor. Whether it's to open your mouth or give up your coat or lay down your life or to trust your kid to Jesus, faith is a trust fall every single time. I so badly want to know big, bold, audacious faith to feel the water under my feet. But I still find falling scary. Lord, I believe. Help me in my unbelief. We have boatloads of boats, I think, and safety harnesses keeping us tethered to them. Some of the things that we cling to actually came from God. You know, maybe they were his manna in the desert yesterday. But today's a new day, and it's calling for a new kind of faith. And even when they're good things, we might need to release our grip on them because we've put too much of our our faith, our hope, and our trust in them. And now they're sitting in a place that's meant only for God. Is there anything that you might be clinging to too tightly that's keeping you from that wild faith walk Jesus wants to take you on? Your comfort zone? Your need for control? Your reputation or what other people might think of you? Financial stability? Are you clinging too tightly to the past, whether it was very bad or very good? How about simple, good old-fashioned fear? It's amazing how tightly we cling to our fear. I read a quote once that said, Some days I wrestle with my demons. Other days we just snuggle. So often when God calls us to an act of faith, I think fear is right there trying to grab hold of us by the throat. And fear took a swipe at Peter too, right? In verse 30. But when he saw the wind, he was afraid. Don't you think, like, come on, man, like, you were doing it. You were walking on the water. 
How could you doubt anything at that moment that your feet were successfully standing on top of a sea? But that's exactly what fear does. That's how it operates. It comes out of nowhere and it just takes a side swipe at us with brutal force. It takes our eyes off Jesus. It distorts our perception and it paralyzes our faith muscle. Fear says that the water won't hold. That God isn't there to take care of our needs, internal or external. That control is being lost, and that's a bad thing. That it isn't safe to love or maybe even let ourselves be seen for real. That reconciliation won't happen, that our words won't have an impact. That new ground can't be broken because these waves are too big. Maybe that God was never really in it anyway. Fear's a nasty beast. But you've got to know it's also a liar, right? And when Jesus is the one who has called you to the water, you have nothing to fear. The best way I know to disarm fear is simply to walk straight into it. To take the leap you are afraid to take. Do the thing you're afraid to do. Do it again and again and again if you have to until Jesus breaks its hold over you, even if that takes a lifetime. Go face first straight into the storm, trusting that it isn't about your power or even your heart, but it's about his and that the wind and waves do indeed still know his name. Fear can often be an indicator that there's something deep that God wants to do inside of you. A gift he wants to give you right on the other side of that wall. You don't want to miss that moment. Because that message is almost always, do you have any idea how deeply and dearly you are loved? 1 John 4.18 says that perfect love casts out fear. Which is funny because you would think it would be courage that would cast out fear. But it's not. It's love. The more we let ourselves be loved by God, let that sink right into our bones, there is less and less capacity for fear to take up space. The more it pushes everything else to the side, actually not just fear, but anger, jealousy, sorrow, worry, the solution to pretty much all our problems is more of Jesus. And that sounds trite, but it is not. It is powerful. The answer is to spend more time sitting at the feet of the Father, in worship, in his word, in his community, so that he can pour more and more and more of a revelation of his incredible, vast, inexhaustible love for us into the holes of our hearts. Peter locked eyes with Jesus from a place deep inside. And then he put his feet out on the waves like they were solid ground. And I think that's exactly what locking eyes with Jesus does. It turns stormy seas into solid ground. It puts your leg up over the side of the boat and it sends you out towards him wherever he is calling you. When's the last time you really locked eyes with Jesus? And what does that even look like for you? 
Is it immersing yourself in worship music? Pouring over his words, opening up a journal? Is it quiet prayer alone in a field? Or not so quiet prayer, also good alone in a field? Is it going for a run and just pondering all of the things that he is doing in you and around you? How do you lock eyes with Jesus? And are you doing it regularly, deeply, daily? We won't survive. Our spiritual health will not survive without it. Now, Peter didn't stay locked, unfortunately, because verse 30 is in the story too. But when he saw the wind, he was afraid. And beginning to sink, he cried out, Lord, save me. Peter took his eyes off Jesus and lost his footing. And I'm sure that this could be a significant, important teaching piece. But to me today, it's just not. He took his eyes off Jesus. He lost his footing. I do this all the time. Maybe you do too. It happens. We are stubbornly human, and we are still stuck on this side of heaven. As long as you do the next step right, you will keep on coming back to the place of truth and life, and you will keep on getting trained by your master for how to walk on water. So what did he do next? He called on the right Savior. He didn't turn back to the boat and say, throw me a ring. He didn't start paddling like mad to get himself through it. He didn't curse the storm or himself. Why did I even try? He just called out to Jesus. Lord, save me. Don't you think Jesus knew he was going to falter? Wasn't it mercy, actually, for God to let him sink slowly enough that there was time to call out, not just go down like a rock? Stumbling doesn't cancel out the plan. Stumbling makes us human. So you don't need to run or hide or curse yourself if you happen to lose your footing. Have the courage to ask the hard questions, maybe, about why you started to slip, what took your eyes off. But Jesus doesn't disqualify him. He just reminds him, it was your faith that got stuck. Why did you doubt? Why do we doubt that God is not everything that he said that he would be? He comes through a thousand times plus one. I don't know what's wrong with me, except that I have an acute case of human at the moment. Our natural human instinct is to cling to safety. But our spiritual redeemed instinct is to walk on water. That's who we were made to be. This is actually one of my favorite passages to teach about finances from. Maybe because that's one of the places where it's hardest for us to leave the safety of the boat behind. And because in the kingdom, finances are never really just about finances. They're always about our heart. They're about learning who's got your back, who's taking care of you, who's holding the whole world in his hands, what's valuable and what's not. It's about learning who your father is and who you are to him. That's what's at stake in all of our trust decisions. Until you loosen your grip on whatever else it is you think is keeping you afloat, You will never learn what's really there holding you up. And that is the one thing, the one hand, the one love that has everything that you could ever need. 
and who will never, ever, ever leave you or forsake you. You have nothing to fear because of the one who loves you so deeply. And it's not even money in the bank to buy food that keeps you alive anyway. It's not. And it's not cottages or vacations or great families or hobbies or home theaters or even a motorcycle ride on an open road that gives you joy and peace. It's not. God is the one who gives and sustains our entire lives, even if he happens to do that through some of those things now and then. But he is the source of all things good. And he has a mission of wild adventure marked out just for you. He has ways he wants to change this world through your heart and your hands. There's a deep and holy calling specifically on your life. And he's inviting you out of the boat to experience it. You can't learn what he wants to teach you just by watching Peter's story unfold. There is an equally crazy, mind-blowing story that is yours, just waiting to be written. I don't know where you're personal leap of faith might be this morning, your invitation to the water. I know where mine is. And from that place, I will say this. The invitation doesn't always feel so much like Peter walking on the water as maybe it does like Abraham being asked to put Isaac on the altar. If that's you this morning, I feel it with you. Because sometimes the invitation into the crazily miraculous is also the invitation to lay our our hopes and dreams, our security and our certainty on the altar and then to wait and see what God might do. The stories are somewhat similar, right? Abraham heard a crazy call. Abraham, too, knew how to ask, listen, and obey. And Abraham took no safety net or backup plan. He was hoping God had one. But Isaac didn't carry a spare lamb up the mountain in case God didn't come through. Isaac carried up firewood and nothing else. And because the leap was so full, so complete, and so real, the faith that grew inside of Abraham was full, complete, and real in the same measure. That's the kind of faith I want to know. Abraham's trust was rewarded. So was Peter's, even when he faltered. And yours will be too. Just try to keep your eyes locked with Jesus. I love that phrase that you guys use here. You desire that Jesus would be non-ignorable in the Niagara region. If that's going to happen, we're going to need to be water walkers. So much so that, as I heard Michael Frost say recently, that the people all around us who have never met the real Jesus look at our lives, turn their heads, and say, how are you doing that? How are you maintaining that sense of peace and hope in the midst of a world going crazy all around us? How do you live so generously? How are you walking so deeply through grief, but there's still so much light in your eyes? 
How are you loving like that? How are you forgiving like that? How are you holding your family like that? How is it you are talking about the God of the universe like as if he's somebody you know intimately? We are supposed to be living. How are you doing that, lives? Because there's a world desperate to see bold, wild, active, living faith and courage in a Savior whose arms can be trusted, who defies all odds, who breaks real chains, who turns utter darkness into brilliant, blinding light again and again and again and who walks on water and invites us to do the same. So, Father, we pray that you would show us anew who you are, that you would open our eyes, that you would help us to open our hands before you and say whatever it is you want, God, in me, in the world, around me, have it, it's yours. Would you grab hold of our hearts in a brand new way and light fire to our feet in a brand new way so that we could know you more and more so that more and more people could know you too. We love you, God, and we thank you for everything that you are so far beyond our imagination. You're a good, good God. In Jesus' mighty name we pray. Amen. Now is our time in the service for connecting with one another, which may be your first opportunity to practice courage and love by saying hi to someone you don't know. Uh, If you have kids five and under, you can grab them from their rooms, and we'll come back in ten minutes to worship together.